This is Letters from the Lunchbox, a podcast centered on the short stories written by author Raylene Burnett. Her work was inspired by powerful messages a father left on 3x5 cards in his children's lunch sacks as he battled cancer. He'd sometimes write words filled with humor, or other times he'd somberly ponder the future or offer gentle reflections. Perhaps most of all, he'd relay encouragement and well wishes for all that lay ahead. Each episode, we invite a guest to share their story and ask the question, what would your 3x5 card say? host Olivia and here's author Raylene Burnett with this week's story The Back Row. I'm sitting alone in the back of the church on a cold metal chair. The congregation is scattered in front of me. There's 150-200 people. Many of them are sitting on benches A few are sitting back farther in folding chairs. There's an order in church who sits where. There are the front row people. Those people get to church early. They sing the hymns eagerly and they listen intently. And then there are the middle row people. They get to church just as it's starting. They hide their phones when it gets boring. And the bench provides cover for all of the coloring books and snacks. And then there are the back row people. They get to church late, on purpose. They leave quickly and they don't want to shake anybody's hand. I'm a back row person. I didn't used to be. After I got married and I had kids, I'd say I was sometimes a front row mixed with a middle row kind of person. I was on time. I was prepared. I was welcoming, listening, singing. I had my husband by my side and my children all around me. And I rarely looked behind me at the back row people, the place where I sit today. It's safe in the back. There are plenty of empty seats all around me. I learned when I was 13 that there are risks in being a front or a middle row person. My dad had just passed away two months after my 13th birthday, and I didn't really want to go back to church. I didn't like the way that I thought people were looking at me like I was pitied. No one really knew what to say to me. It was awkward around my friends. But it was Sunday, and my mom wanted to go, and she didn't want to go alone, so I went with her. We walked into the church 
a couple minutes before it started and we stood in the doorway scanning and searching for an empty bench. My mom saw a few rows up. There were some empty spots on the end of a bench. We approached the bench and as we were starting to sit down, the woman sitting in the middle of the bench saw us, quickly scooted over to where we were, leaned her body close to up to where we were and whispered, oh, I'm sorry, these seats are saved. You can't sit here. Mom said, oh, sorry. And I was sure there was a spotlight shining on me. We stood in the aisle for a few seconds while mom searched again for an empty spot. She saw another bench a few rows up uh, with an, a few empty spots on the bench. So we walked quickly up the aisle and again started to sit down when the person on that bench explained, oh, these seats are saved. I'm sorry, you can't sit here. I was sure everyone was staring at me. Everyone was staring at me. Oh, oh, said mom, okay, okay. But I could tell it wasn't okay. We turned around and we started to walk back down the aisle back down towards the doors and mom whispered to me if the next person says their seat is saved I'm leaving we walked almost to the back we saw a few empty seats we stopped and mom said to the woman sitting next to the empty seats are these seats saved? The woman called my mom by her name, Betty. Betty, she said, yes, they are saved for you and your daughter. I'm my mom now. My husband has passed away. My children are gone, but I'm not as brave as she was. I don't mingle in the middle. I sit in the crowd of empty chairs in the back where no one can say they are saved. But I've become more aware of the people scattered sporadically in the back. The ones who come late, who I never saw before. And I wonder how many people, how many back row people have wandered by, have passed through my life, at work, at church, at school, who I never reached out to. I never made an effort to get to know because I was busy, busy getting to church on time, or it was awkward or I didn't know what to say, or I thought we didn't have anything in common, or maybe they said something insensitive that I thought was rude and I didn't want to get to know them, and, and on and on go my excuses. 
and I wonder, what have I missed? Every Thursday night, a neighborhood stranger never misses to help me. Since Kevin died, no matter if it's raining, snowing, windy, ice on the streets, or it's a calm summer night, that good Samaritan neighbor pulls my garbage can down the driveway in the middle of the dark and parks it by the curb. It's there every Friday morning when I get up, garbage day. And I'm grateful for people who see me, a person who sits on the back row. And I hope to be more like that, a person who sees the invisible, who saves seats for the lonely, and lugs a stinky garbage can to the street. That was the story, The Back Row. I think throughout our lives, we'll all have times where we find ourselves on the front row, sometimes on the middle row, and yes, even on the back row. So if you find yourself in a middle row or a front row stage of life, go ahead and scoot over, even if you're saving seats, to save room for those people who need it most. You know, my dad told me, just a few days before he passed, that he realized that life really truly is not about things. It's about people. So no matter what row you're on, no matter if you're in a high stage or a low stage of life, you can always make room for those who are looking for a seat. I'm so excited to introduce you to today's guest, Jamaica Martin. Jamaica was raised in Utah and attended Timpanogos High School, where she played basketball, soccer, and ran track. And she won many state championships across all three of those sports. She was a two-sport collegiate athlete, playing basketball at Salt Lake Community College and running track at UVU. She graduated from UVU with her undergrad in 2020 and then graduated with her Master in Business Administration in 2021. Since then, her and her husband, Nate, run their own business, and she is an extremely successful business professional with experience in sales and marketing. She's also a very prominent and well-known speaker. She's received many awards in sports and academics, such as being named to the all-conference team and being a double nominee for Woodsbury's Woman of the Year. Jamaica, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so nice of you. Of course. You know, I've heard a lot of stories in my life about people meeting each other and falling in love, but I truly have to admit, and you know, I've known you since high school, but I think that yours is one of the craziest I have ever heard. <laughs> um, can you take us back in time and tell us the story of how you met your husband, Nate? Yeah, Absolutely. It's a bit of a story, so buckle up. So to give you some context, as you know, you know, you knew me in high school. When I graduated my senior year, I had a falling out with my best friend at the time. And so the summer after I graduated, I was just kind of sad and stewing because obviously losing 
the person that you've been best friends with for four years hurts a lot. So I was going through, we'll call it a sad girl era. My husband, Nate, um, he was currently serving in Jamaica. He was really good at football. He had a scholarship to play football for Snow College. His plan was to serve a mission in Jamaica, go back, go to Snow, play football. They have a great agriculture degree and his parents are farmers. So after finishing his ag degree, he's going to move home and just take over the farm. Well, one day he was riding his bike in Jamaica and a taxi that was going 50 miles an hour didn't see Nate and so he hit him while he was riding his bike and he broke all the bones in one of his ears if you look at him he's got all these crazy scars on his neck because the strap from his helmet had ripped through his neck and so he's bleeding out on his neck his brain was dented and so this taxi driver that was going really fast felt bad about hitting him and that's kind of the first miracle. And he picked Nate up and he threw him in the back of the car and he just drove off. And he left his companion there. <laughs> and so his companion just rode home, didn't have the phone, didn't have the keys, and just sat on the porch and was like, what did I just witness? The companion was probably like, what am I supposed <laughs> to do? Exactly. <gasps> and so they drop, he drops Nate off at the steps of this hospital and just drives away. We don't know who he is. Well, luckily, one of the members in the ward happened to be passing the hospital when Nate was dropped off and recognized him and called the mission president and let the mission president know, like, hey, one of your missionaries is here and he's been dropped off at the at the hospital. Now, this is the first Jamaican mission president that they've ever had, like a, a natural born citizen. Normally, it's an American. And so since he's a natural born citizen, he knows that this hospital is horrible and doesn't have the resources to actually take care of Nate. And so if they want to admit him because he's white and they want their money, but they will essentially kill him if he gets admitted. So the mission president calls the hospital and says, whatever you do, do not admit him. You can't admit him. And the hospital's upset. So they say, fine, get your own ambulance for the next hospital then. So they have to send an ambulance from the capital, Kingston, all the way over to the town that he's in. And it's about a two hour drive there and back. And so within this time that they're trying to transport Nate there and back, Nate falls into a coma. Now, as they're moving Nate from the ambulance into the actual hospital, it just so happened that a Jamaican-born doctor who had done his medical school in the UK and had practiced there for years um, had flown in the night before and was walking into the hospital to do a training with some residents that were neurosurgeons. And so all the residents, the doctors in training, they were like, well, let's, you know, do like a CAT scan. Let's do an MRI. Let's see what's going on. But this doctor, he was so well trained. He was like, if we do that, he will die. He's already been in a coma for many hours. And so he took him right into surgery without doing like any scans. He cut open his skull, found out where the brain bleeding was, um, stopped the bleeding, and then just waited for him to wake up. His parents are in Idaho and they get a call in the middle of the night. And it basically just says, hey, like your son's undergoing brain surgery he was in a car crash in Jamaica we don't know if he's gonna live and if he lives we have no idea what kind of quality of life he's gonna have he's been in a coma for hours and so they got up went to the nearest airport and just head headed straight to Jamaica so when Nate woke up he actually recognized his parents and the doctor said that's a miracle there I thought for there was no chance he was gonna be able to recognize his parents be able to speak do anything like that um, and so he spent a few weeks in the hospital and then he went home, uh, but he was doing pretty good from there. He was having some issues, like he couldn't balance great, couldn't speak very good, 
but he's very determined, super stubborn, and he wanted to go back out on his mission. And so three months later, he put in his papers again, and somehow the church just overlooked that he had just had brain surgery and couldn't walk correctly <laughs> or, like, speak correctly. you think that would be, like, a yeah, thing, you know? Yeah, you would think they'd be like, oh, yeah, no, we can't let him back out. And so they sent him back to Jamaica three months later. Meanwhile, my family went on vacation to Jamaica. And, like I mentioned, it had been a hard time of my life. And I had been praying to Heavenly Father, like, please help me. I just want to have a friend, right? For months and months and months. And I had this prompting to switch my prayers from please, like, save me to who can I be a friend to? Like, help me to look outside of myself. Help me to find somebody that needs my help and please lead me and guide me to them. So that was the week that I started switching my prayers. And we normally travel to church, like, whenever I'm with my family. But for some reason, we could not find a taxi driver to take us to church anywhere. We were calling. No one said they could take us. And I just felt in my gut really strongly we really needed to go to church. So I begged my mom. I was like, please, like, please find us someone that can take us to church. So we finally found a taxi that could take us to church. And he actually drove us to the wrong chapel. And when I walked into that chapel, I recognized one of the elders because it was someone who I'd gone to high school with. And his companion was none other than Nate Martin, my future husband. So we just briefly talked. Obviously, you can't talk to elders when yeah. they're on their mission. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's where we briefly met. I went home on Sunday and then the, the next week. And Nate had actually been, like, passing out. He'd have it, been having issues. Mm. And so he called the mission doctor and was like, hey, I'm having all these problems. And the mission doctor was like, what are you doing out here? I didn't even know you were in this mission. You should not be here. You should be doing, like... 15 months at least of therapy and so they sent him home and you know when he tells the story he just says you know he's in the airplane he's looking out the window and he's just like god why why am i going home why am i having these issues like i worked so hard to get on a mission this horrible thing happened to me and instead of staying home i came back out like why couldn't you just heal me but he went home and because he had speech and like balance issues and there's not a lot of medical care in idaho his parents moved him down here to Provo, and he started working on occupational and speech therapy. So he remembered my name, because it's really easy, because it's Jamaica, and he messaged me on Facebook, and so we dated for a year, and um, after a year, he went back out on his mission for the third time. He was able to keep in contact with his mission president in Jamaica throughout the whole thing, and so they sent him back to Jamaica, which is like unheard of. Normally they send you stateside. Um, and then two weeks later, I went on my mission. And the first area that Nate served in was actually the area where my family is. So at the time, I had aunts and uncles who aren't members and who's able to teach my uncle the lessons and some of my cousins the lessons. And they were able to get baptized. And so that was a huge tender mercy to me. So he got home a few months before I did, waited for me, came home, and kind of the rest... The rest is history. That is crazy. <laughs> I, like, actually have chills. I've heard, like, bits and pieces of that story. I don't think I've ever heard it, like, start to finish like that. But I, I was just thinking as you were saying, like, Nate was looking out the window thinking, like, why, God, why? It's like, well, of course you need to come home because it had to meet you. Like, obviously. <laughs> like, I think there's so many times in that story where it's just, like, right place, right yeah. time, obviously. Yeah. And... 
I mean, maybe Nate was this for you, but have you ever been, like, the recipient of someone being there at the right place at the right time for you? Yeah, so many times. I, I think I've told you, before I'm at my current job, which is I work in sales, I worked as a social worker. I was miserable. I hated it. And I happened to meet a professor at UVU who, for some reason, just wanted to get to know me and talk to me. And he took me aside and mentioned, hey, have you ever considered like working in sales before and the thought had literally never crossed my mind before and so him just like just bumping into him him having the courage to tell me that he thought I'd be good at sales completely changed the entire trajectory of my life so I'm really thankful for him just following those promptings and putting me in where I am today yeah yeah you know it's like the story that Raylene just shared before this, she she talks about someone who was there for her in really difficult times. And your story makes me think of one of my like most favorite scriptures in the Bible that is in Esther. And I don't know exactly where it is, but it's the one that says thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And so much of your story with Nate or even just the social, like changing from social work to sales, like none of that is easy. Like Nate, going back out on his mission three times, you guys dating and then deciding to be apart for a year and all of that, like definitely not easy things. So how did you acquire basically like this, not only the spiritual skills, but even just the understanding so that you could be like in those right places at the right time with like the right preparation to basically do, you know, everything that God asks us to do and that we even, like, promise pre-mortally to do. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's a good question. I think from a really young age, as long as I can remember, I've always known that I wanted to do what God's will was for me and not follow my own life plan. Um, and that's always been something that's really been, stru- like, heavy on my mind. I knew I was supposed to go on a mission. I knew that was God's will for me. I did not want to go, but I knew in my gut that I was supposed to. And so I just trusted him, went. It was the greatest experience of my life. I'm so thankful I I did. But I knew that if I did what he wanted, like he has better, bigger plans for me than I could ever think of for myself. And I know that he needs me to do things that maybe I can't even imagine for myself. I've always struggled with like insecurity and low self-confidence. And so by putting my trust in him and letting him guide me, I feel like he's just raised me up to do bigger, better things than I could have ever imagined. And so when things get hard and when things get scary, I try to just be like, hey, thy will be done. What do you need from me? Like, it's this is not my plan. This is your plan. Like, all we have when it gets scary and hard is faith and trust that Jesus Christ is going to put us in the places and guide us to the places that we need to be. Or else, like, my only other option, really, our only other option is to be scared, feel anxious, feel nervous right and so whenever I get into that spot I try to just remember that I'll feel more peace I'll be happier if I just give him my will and follow him wherever he tells me to go yeah that can be hard it's really hard (laughs) yeah I feel like especially for someone like me I don't know how you are I feel like I have to have control over like everything right so how do you feel like you first like exhibited that trust in him like was it kind of just like a blind leap of faith I mean sounds like now maybe you have had enough experiences where like that trust has been built a little bit but how do you like 
kind of take that leap at first. Yeah. I'm the same way. I'm very, like, schedule organized. Like, I have my life planned out for the next 10 years. Yeah. So I do horrible <laughs> with change. So I'm very much the same way. Um, and I, th- I think it is just, like, a leap of faith. It's the scariest thing ever. I can think of a few times in my life when I've just had, like, gut feeling sick to my stomach having to force myself to do something that I know isn't right. I'm like dragging my feet and crying the whole way, but I know that's what he needs me to do. And so I do it. And I think I've seen the fruits of that blessing us enough time that I have a little bit more confidence in him now. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, sometimes you have to do it even if you're just like kicking and screaming the whole way. Yeah. Just trust him. Yeah. I think a lot of what you're talking about is just like trust and honestly bravery and, and courage yeah. too. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to ask you about, I think another thing, maybe it's just me that gets overwhelmed a lot, but I think like the concept of being in the right place at the right time can be scary because it seems like you have like no control over that. Right. And whether it's like a job or a relationship or whatever it may be. Right. Sometimes it feels like I haven't, I have no control over being in the right place at the right time. But I read this article actually, as I was preparing for this podcast and I'll just read what it says. I thought it was so interesting. It says, being in the right place at the right time takes practice. It isn't luck or fate that moves us along. It's our own work habits. So I know you just recently graduated with your MBA as well, which is amazing. But have you seen that play into your life and being in the right place at the right time? Like the habits and the things that you've developed? Yeah, definitely. I think it's important because it can be scary to be worried about being in the right place at the right time. But to remember that God will not fail. Like his plan will come to pass. Whether it's with you or without you, you don't have to worry because what God wants to happen is going to come to pass. I feel like that makes me feel a little bit more at ease. Um, But in work and in life, it's just the little things I found. Just like trying to read my scriptures, trying to go to church, trying to give myself the spirit. And it's a million little choices that eventually get you to where you need to be. And if you're doing, it's okay if you mess up one or two days, like God can course correct. He's going to figure a way out, but trying to be consistent in the little things for sure has been important to me. Yeah. Yeah. That makes me think of that scripture in Proverbs, you know, the one that's like trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. And as you've been talking, one thing I keep thinking is like, man, this, this girl has a strong relationship with God. So who is God to you? You know, if you believe that he has such a big part in helping us being in the right place at the right time, like as you've grown older, as you come to know him more and more, who is he to you? Yeah, he's, he's my father, right? And he looks after me just like my earthly father does. And he cares about all the little things that I care about, whether that's, you know, doing well at work, whether that's my spiritual life or my personal life. Um, And something I've learned as well is life is going to be hard, even if you have a relationship with God. And so to me, he's really become like a close friend and confidant. And when the world doesn't understand what I'm going through, it feels like I'm completely alienated and alone. He's someone who mourns with me and cries with me and like feels my pain and understands my pain. Um, And that alone, I feel like has just helped me to be more confident in him, knowing that, okay, he understands me, even though... Maybe he can't take away all the pain right now. I wish he would, but maybe he can't. Don't we all? <laughs> yeah, but he weeps with me. He war- mourns with me. Mm-hmm. He understands the pain that I'm going through. And so because he understands that I can trust him, I can trust his plan for me. Yeah. 
I think that answer ties in perfectly to the next thing I want to talk to you about. I, and like I said, I've had the privilege of knowing you for a while, <laughs> but just how you were talking about in your story with Nate, how you were in like your sad girl era, <laughs> I think I've definitely kind of been in a sad girl era lately. And it's funny because what you said you changed about your prayers was literally the advice you gave me like last week. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I was talking to you about a hard thing in my life and how I basically was like, Heavenly Father, rescue me, rescue me. And you basically told me to pray for others, which was the most humbling (laughs) kick in the butt I needed. So how do you focus on turning outwards when it feels literally so hard? Just like saying, if you had lost your best friend or it feels so much like rescue me and you have such limited energy and resources how do you focus on serving others in those moments yeah I feel like in those moments it's when it's hardest for me to feel God's love as well like it's really easy when you're feeling that way like rescue me to feel like you're abandoned and to feel like you're kind of drowning beneath the ocean right and so I feel like one of the reasons why it's good to serve others is because I feel like I always feel Heavenly Father's love when I'm like serving the people around me. I always know that he's there. And so like that thought alone is enough sometimes to get me out of my drowning, okay, you're abandoning me like mindset and to really just focus on others. Be like, okay, I need to feel Heavenly Father's love right now. And I'm going to do that by finding someone else who's in need and serving them. And Heavenly Father loves us. And so I know that when I pray, hey, help me to find someone to serve, like he will guide me to find because there's everyone needs help right so he will guide me to one of his other children that he loves and help me to serve them and through that process I know that I'll feel his love and I'll just be reassured that he's there watching over me I think at one point in your life or another you will feel abandoned by God like you will be upset you will have a little bit of a bitter taste in your mouth like it's going to happen it's part of life we came here to be tested but if I could give any advice it'd be not to give up right? I know when I felt that there was a time I stopped going to church for a few weeks, but then when I returned, I remember I walked into the chapel and I felt the spirit so strong and I felt just arms around me, giving me a hug. So if I could give any advice, it's if you're in that place right now, if you're feeling that way, keep doing the little things, keep trying to seek God and anything like he's there. He loves you. He will not abandon you. Even if it feels like that, hold the path, hold faith. If you trust him, you will get out of whatever you're going through so much faster than if you're you were too alone. Like, don't run the race by yourself. Trust him. He's going to be there for you. I love that. Well, thanks so much, Jamaica, of for course. being on the podcast Thank today. You for it, me. it has been so wonderful to talk to you a little bit. And just before we go, I want to ask you the same question we ask everyone at the end of every podcast. If you could, you know, metaphorically put a little three by five card in your lunchbox to share with everyone listening, what would it say? So, in the Bible, Um, there's a blind man and all the apostles look at this poor blind man who's been blind his whole life. And they're like, what did he do to get such a horrible life? Um, did his parents sin? Did he sin? And Jesus said, neither hath this man sin nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. And so I think my three by five card would say that I was born that the works of God could be made manifest in me. To all our listeners out there, thanks for being with us and thanks for listening. Don't forget to like and subscribe and leave a review if you'd like. Um, Our email is sharemystory at lettersfromthelunchbox.com. 
we would love if you would share your story with us and potentially bring you on the podcast to share it with others. We'll see you guys with a new episode in two weeks. Thank you.